Death Cafe is a place where people can get together, eat cake, have tea and discuss death. The objective of Death Cafe is to increase awareness of death with a view to helping people make the most of their finite lives. And to date there have been 11,577 Death Cafes around the world in 74 countries, which is quite staggering. It was set up in 2011 by John Underwood in his basement in his home in Hackney in London. John died unexpectedly in 2017 at the age of 44 and his sister and mum continue his work with Death Cafe. So in today's episode I'm joined by his mum Susan Barsky-Reed and his sister Jules Barsky to discuss why John founded Death Cafe and the man himself and his legacy. I think it's going back to that um, impermanence, you know, understanding that one day you're not going to be here. How is it, how can you change what you're going to do today that's really going to impact you? Some people kind of belittle having a duvet day and sitting there and watching movies, but if that's actually what you want, rather than cleaning the house to prepare to do that, then um, you can really fulfil, you can gain your happiness through that small thing. Um, You know, you don't have to go out there and be life-changing for other people if that's not going to be fulfilling for you. John single-handedly started to change culture around death and end-of-life awareness, not just in the UK, but across the globe, and has played a huge part in the death-positive movement we are currently experiencing. As ever, I would love if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast as it really helps people to find it. What prompted John to set up Death Cafe and did he have an experience of death early on that prompted him to do this? I know he worked with the Buddhist centre Jam Yang and I wondered whether that had had an impact on him as well. Uh, I don't know about the early life. That's probably better coming from you. Um... I don't think... He didn't have any traumatic experiences or sudden deaths in his early life. He was always, to me, seemed to be searching for truth and and meaning in in life and found it when he became a Buddhist. Uh, That really changed him in a a most wonderful way for the better. Um, And I think it was through his study of Buddhism that he began to think about death because I think Buddhists are, Jules knows more about this than me as a Buddhist, that Buddhists are told to contemplate death. And I think it was through that that he became interested in in death and dying. He did uh, volunteer at a, at a hospice through, through Jamyang. I think some people from Jamyang used to go to a hospice and he got uh, some satisfaction from from doing that. So, following on from that, he was. Um, so, the Buddhist philosophy is one of um, impermanence. So, understanding that nothing in this world is permanent, we're always going to, at some point, um, you know, extinguish, and then there's the opportunity for reincarnation. So. The Dalai Lama every single day will go through this death process where he will envisage his own death and how that is going to feel physically and mentally. And it's something that John really embraced. Um, And then, so that's kind of, I imagine, what was going on in his head to an extent. And then uh, he was working for Hackney Council and we were sat on the top of this double-decker bus 
And um, he said, Jules, I'm thinking about quitting my job. And I was like, okay, okay. And he said, yeah, I'm thinking about like, I'm doing a death website. Um, and, you know, I, I wasn't a Buddhist at this point. So I'm just like, okay, all right. So tell me more. And he was like, well, yeah, I think that people don't think about death. And I'm thinking about maybe this death magazine and it'll have really cool articles and people can like chat about death and they can do all of these cool death rituals. And he was so excited about it. And I thought, go on, then do it. Um, so I don't know how long it was after that conversation, but um, he left his job. And um, that that following year in 2011, that was when the first Death Cafe happened. So it was it was different, wasn't it? The first Death Cafe. Uh, Alistair found an article in the Independent mag- uh, newspaper. Yes, his stepdad. That was about Bernard Cretas and Café Mortel. And he cut out the article and actually posted it to John. to because And that was where the inspiration for Death Café yeah. came from. It had a few iterations of before he kind of came around to the idea of getting people in one place to talk about death and dying. Yeah. So it was almost like a spectrum of things that he planned to create. And all of these... But what what we see now is Death Cafe with the blog articles and all that kind of stuff. That's almost a curation of what it was that he'd planned to do as very separate entities. Um, I don't know whether you want to talk about the first Death Cafe and yeah. how, how it was different. Yeah. Most of the people who came to the first Death Cafe were people that, that John knew, some friends and friends of friends. I think there were there were seven of us all together, maybe seven participants and, and me and people who had some interest in death and dying. And John decided we were going to have sandwiches and cake. I think I'd bake the cake. I think it's probably the same cake we're eating today. <laughs> Actually, it's my favourite cake. Um, and he planned very carefully all these things we were, that we were going to do with... Um, sort of games, uh, questions to ask people, pieces of paper that you were going to burn. And at John's uh, downstairs room where it was held has um, an open fire. So there was an open fire. It was in the autumn. It was sort of quite, it's quite a dark room. Um, so it was quite atmospheric. And we did all these sort of rituals and targeted questions and it it went fine and it was very interesting and it flowed and at the end of it I as a gestalt psychotherapist who lets things happen said do we actually need to have all this stuff all we need to do is say who are you and why why have you come and so the next time we did one that's what we did and it flowed just as well if not better uh that's how it started. Yeah. And it was that really that um, the um, guidelines were created from that. So yeah. it was a very much a kind of very specific kind of a conversation between the two of you, wasn't it? That made it very rigid. You know, it, there won't be any kind of agenda. We won't be leading people to any form of conclusion. You know, you will only use targeted questions if it's really required by the group. Yeah, I understand that. And I think it does work really well. And I think in the death cafes that I hold, sometimes people think, am I going to lead them by giving them a subject? Mm. And I think they're very surprised. And I say to them, look, 
all I'm going to do is get you to say who you are. Mm. And then you can talk about anything that you want and why you're here, or even if you don't know why you're here. And that's it. You're, you know, you're absolutely right. It just, it flows and it works. And then, you know, it's really hard to, to then move to, to, to even leave the event. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, we need to wrap up now. But people just want to continue. Yeah. And so it's, it works brilliantly. Something very magical seems to happen. I don't really understand how, but it, that I've been to some wonderful death cafes that where amazing, funny events have happened as well as really sad yeah. things. That that's the thing people don't don't always get, isn't it? That that sometimes you can laugh as much as you might cry. Yeah, and that's life, isn't it? We all laugh and we all cry, and yeah. That's very, and I and I think you're right. Something does, you know, something very magical happens. Um, and something that John said, which I was going to say to you, was that he said that the consumption of food is a life-sustaining process, and the idea of the cake for him normalised things. Yeah. And I think I thought that was really nice. That, that simplicity and the, the, that how, how it makes people feel very comfortable he, to uh, talk. He described that as. Um, kind of a little bit naughty of a little bit like having a secret midnight feast whilst you're talking about something that's really taboo yeah mm. yeah and it and I think that's it I, I think the thing is talk you know people like to talk over dinner or talk in the um over cake and there's actually there is something called death over dinner as well mm. but I but I like the idea of the death cafe because it's very informal it has that sort of informal feeling to it I think that's why it works so much so do you feel that through um death cafe that you both have learned to lead a better life because I know that you know that the whole point of death cafe is to create an awareness of death to help people make the most of their lives and I wondered has that happened to you through your work with death cafe or is that something that you have always thought about or has John made you think about that rather than the Death Cafe? I uh, I think it's probably more John than Death Cafe, mm-hmm. um, because of the kind of relationship that we had. He and you know he won't shy away from things that he feels very passionate about. Yeah. Um, you know sometimes he could be quite dogmatic about it. Um, and, you know, I think when I was a teenager and I'd be sitting there looking into space and he'd be like, Jules, concentrate, you know, why are you not focusing? <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, probably forcefully at some points he would kind of say, you know, you really need to think about the fact that you're not going to be here one day. But equally, it would be like, you know, does this thing really matter? You know, if you're worried, um, put it into perspective and, you know, yes, you may feel like that and that's fine, but tomorrow things will change and they'll get better or they'll get worse but they won't be exactly the same as they are now and for me it's that philosophy that really has got me through a lot of um things and been the point of reference for me to think about life and death because yes things are going to change you do have that impermanence um and you know the there is the weekly reminder working on death cafe and obviously thinking about all of every time I work on death cafe I think about John and the conversations that we had and um you know the things that people say to me even if they're just you know I've written a book and um you know this is what it's about or I'm holding a death cafe I'm really excited to do it and um 
yeah, it's for me, it kind of, it's trickle feeding in that way. And with John, it was very much a kind of blast in the face of, you know, think about death. It's really important. Hmm. So this is quite an interesting question because obviously I'm from Sri Lankan descent and I run my own death cafe. And at first I was worried that it was going to feel elitist, that it was going to be like a very middle class type thing. And and I didn't want it to be very white middle class. But actually, I'm really pleasantly happy to say that um, it attracts all ages, classes, nationalities. And that's been a relief for me, actually. And I was just wondering, was John conscious of the type of people that would be attracted to Death Cafe? And also, or was it like a sort of wait and see what happens scenario? Um he was very enthusiastic about making sure that death cafes were available and publicised for minorities, um, particularly <clears throat> for people of colour, for um, LGBTQ, um, homeless people, yeah. Mm. And, you know, very passionately involved in those communities wherever he could be, yeah. We have noticed that the majority of people attending are female, Uh I don't know whether that's your experience too, but when we were doing it and when John was doing it, it must have been 75% female. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I did, I do find that. And I've always tried, my husband actually, I made my husband go to the one on Wednesday because I said, look, we need more men. So I, I actually, and, and actually I'd like you to come. But I did one in Wales when I did my talk for the this company called The Do Lectures it was mainly men that came. Oh, well. It was, and there was about, I could count the women on, on, on one hand, but the majority was mainly men, and they all sat there and mm. cried. <laughs> and I was really surprised, because I thought, this is the first time this has happened to me. The death cafes that I've been running now yeah. for a couple of years have now all been mainly female, but this was the one that, and I think it was partly to do with the event that, you know, I'd run it as part of the event, and there was a lot of men there. But I was surprised to see that a lot of men had come. And they were completely transformed afterwards. I mean, they were, yeah, it was really powerful. Yeah. Really, really powerful. So I would love to have more men come and try and encourage more men to come. And that's my mission. And how did John see Death Cafe's impact, impact on how we view death in our culture? And how did he feel with the the sort of global explosion of Death Cafe, because, I mean, I feel that's definitely what's happened. I think it surprised him. Um, I think it surprised a lot of people um, how successful it was. You know, it started off in his living room and suddenly there were people holding them in cafes in Lagos. Um, you know, it's incredible. So that's so, I mean, that would have been just incredible for him. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there were people who attended his funeral who obviously there was quite a lot of publicity about his death and mm. they, uh, they were saying, you know, I really didn't have any idea that Death Cafe was quite so popular. Um, you know, he's almost famous. And, uh, well, my friends are still surprised that they didn't know it was John that, that, that started it. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, they just kind of knew he was vaguely involved in some yeah. sort of weird death conversation. <laughs> yeah, so there's um, a few people that have taken John's model um, and used it to talk about menopause. 
Um, yes. Yeah, Menopause Cafe. And they, you know, they, they credit John with having come up with the mm. guidelines that they follow. And there was another one recently, I forget. Um, somebody sent me a, a text message and said, oh, there's such and such a cafe. Might have been like Cancer Cafe. Okay, that's Which, interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Yeah. It really is like, you know, it, it completely blows me away. Um, um, and I, part of the Death Cafe, I find, is that people feel, when they come out, they feel lighter. Yeah. And these are some of the words that people have said that, um, from my questionnaires that I've done, they've said it's uplifting, colourful, liberating, mm. inspiring, profound, human, respectful and funny and why do you think death cafe has this effect on people um i think because people have got a connotation that death is always going to be a morbid difficult subject to talk about and so they they really don't know what to expect when they they just have this yeah they have this kind of preconceived expectation that it's going to just be difficult um, and then it surprises them that actually when they begin to talk about it, it releases lots of different parts of their mind that have maybe been locked up before. And locked away. Exactly. Um, because it's such a difficult thing to talk about in normal society. Um, so I would imagine that that's why, you know, if it was just an easy thing to sit down and have a chat with your colleagues about at work, you know, coffee round, um, then people would realise that it's not quite so difficult as they expect. I wanted to talk to Susan and Jules about John's sudden death in 2017 of acute promyelcytic leukaemia. He hadn't made plans for what he wanted when he was dying or his funeral, but ironically, Jules' cat had died 10 weeks before his death and John had advised her of the Buddhist ritual of chanting of prayers for 49 days after the cat's death that would help its consciousness move on. This gave her invaluable insight into what John might have wanted for himself. John's spiritual teacher, Geshe Tashi, from the Jangyang Buddhist Centre in London, provided guidance before and after John's death. You know, Buddhists believe that certain things happen for reasons, you know, nothing is an accident. So Geshe-la, that weekend before John's death, so when he collapsed, um, he was in France seeing a friend and he said that when he's there, he never looks at his emails, never looks at his phone. And this weekend, for some reason, he felt like he should. Mm. And he got a text message from um, Jane, who is a, a Jamyang member, um, saying, Geshe-la, something really important has happened because John and Geshe-la are very, very close. So um, Geshe-la raced back to um, the hospital and sat with us and said some prayers and stuff around John. And then during his actual death, he did this poa ritual. The idea being that um, Geshe-la, with his you know, extensive practice and understanding of this ritual, is able to ensure that John's reincarnation will be into a positive rebirth. So either as a higher being or as a human who wow. is living in a kind of non-poverty stricken you know um a life of not necessarily luxury but it, that will enable him to continue to practice buddhism mm. or potentially even as a buddha yes um and some nuns have said that you can write to um one of the lamas to find out exactly where he is but sort of advised me against doing that she said if you do that you know it might make you either you won't be happy with the answer or it might make you question whether or not it's real and that will potentially destroy your faith and I'll be honest I've not really got any interest in finding that out no um but for me it's very clear that 
all of these things, you know, they did seem a lot more than coincidence. The fact that the cat had died 10 weeks before and he, and so he'd sent chanting advice of how to move its spirit on. Yeah. And he phoned up just to say, how are you? How, how are you doing after the cat died? Mm. Most, most days that week, didn't he? And actually, so 49 days after somebody dies, you say prayers um, to enable them to have a good rebirth. Mm. And so John had sent me this really long list of prayers that I could do. Um, so I was for, which the, I, cat. for the cat, which yes. I did for 49 <laughs> days. Wow. Um, and it was only because of that, that kind of process that I was familiar with doing those prayers, which I then repeated for John. Um, which he taught you which, to do. Which he taught me to do, yeah, and advised. Um, so that actually, that was something that I was able to really get a lot of comfort from with, um, you know, when I was grieving for him because I felt like I'm powerless. There's literally nothing I can do. And I thought, actually, yes, there is. I can do these prayers that he's taught me to do. And I have all of this stuff. And I went to like some of it's a visualization of different Buddhas and I'd got in and colored them different things. And we'd had a conversation about the fact that he'd done something similar. So this whole process made me feel very, very connected to him. And that was a lovely way of you having that process to be able to do that for him, Mm -hmm. that he had guided you to do for the cat. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. More from the girls in a moment. Death Cafe are a not-for-profit organisation run by Jules and Susan themselves and they could really do with your support to expand the valuable work that they are doing. Have a look on patreon.com slash deathcafe and I'll also put all the links in the show notes. Now back to Susan and Jules. Obviously the impact of John's death has been massive. I can I can see that. But was there a part of... John's philosophy about death and dying that was helpful in you dealing with his dying um, i.e. the fact that he had lived in the present moment and that he was conscious that we all have this finite amount of time I think I got no comfort personally I didn't get any comfort from mm. that there was um, I because I, I was running Death Cafe you know the day after he died so I had his computer to do that and I was reading the files on there because I thought I really need to get inside his head so that I understand where I need to be coming from to help people in the same way that he was. Um, and what was comforting for me was looking over his the things that he'd written. Often it was just kind of a diary entry um, and um, it was there were things in there where he's like people think that because I talk about death that I think death is good but death sucks and it's shit and you know it's really not okay that um death exists but you know what can we do about it and you know there was so much personal thought and emotion that he'd written down in this computer and it's so precious that it that helped in a way because I I kind of I almost wanted to step in his shoes just so I could understand what he'd gone through and how he would have felt about it but I don't think that it was comforting uh, you know it didn't help with the grief or no. anything like that he would have said it's a it's a shit it's a shit thing <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 to put it lightly yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I was going to ask about his funeral um 
How did you plan for it, not knowing what he wanted? Look through his computer to try and find anything. There was... There was an advance directive. There was an advance directive. Which was unsigned. <laughs> um, yeah, he'd, so he tried to set up funerals in Jamyang, the Buddhist centre, um, and got into quite a lot of meetings. And again, when I was searching through his computer, I found all of these files and notes and meetings and things that he'd attended. But, um, and he'd said to me once, if I, if I die at my kind of funeral, I'd like to have this song called sex in zero gravity because it sounds like you're flying through space um which frustratingly i gave it the one of his friends was um putting together the music for his funeral and i think he thought it was an inappropriate song so he didn't include <laughs> oh <it>. no <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah that's pretty much the extent of john's planning um which was really frustrating because and surprising really yeah. surprising yeah and he would sort of say i think there's um there's an interview where he said to somebody, yeah, it's really important that you get a will and I'm going to do mine really soon. <laughs> and did he hell? Um, we were so, probably too busy trying to get people to do it themselves. Yeah, he was that kind of a person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it was quite difficult because obviously it's a very emotional, difficult time. Yeah. And the very last thing you want to be doing is making decisions, no. um, which you feel, particularly for something as high profile as John's funeral, you think if I get this wrong, then it's going to ref reflect really badly. From that perspective, it's made me want to organise my stuff just because I don't want my family to be in that that selfish position that he put us in. Yes. <laughs> but I guess in an ironic situation, because he planned what he wanted for the Jamyang Centre, it probably gave you an idea of... It wasn't only very slightly because it was almost to do with the pre-death as well as the death itself. Okay. Um, and the part that was difficult was um, actually getting Jamyang to agree to hold the funerals because obviously it involves having a body in the gompo, the main prayer room and, um, you know, the number of people that would be able to go there and it's used for lots of different classes. So it was the practical side of things that it was very difficult to organise and that's what the discussions, I think, were primarily based around. Um, and it's funny because, um, you know, it, it, however many years they were trying to organize this and Geshe Tashi said, yeah, of course his funeral is going to be at Jamyang. There was no question, you know, he was able to just almost like everything fell into place in a really strange turn of events. In terms of thoughts from Death Cafe in the future, I know there was talk about a death cafe, a permanent death cafe and yes. there was money being raised and is that something that's probably not going to happen now or it's not it's not off the cards no. but um you know I work full-time as well as doing death cafe so you know John was able to because he was a stay-at-home dad so he was able to when the kids were at school that was what he was doing yeah um so I think it would be wonderful to have a permanent death cafe but in the short term it would be very difficult to have that happen he tried to raise the money to open it and it didn't happen that there was not nearly enough money raised no. to enable the permanent death cafe to happen so that idea was put on one side at least whilst he was st still alive yeah. he um he did start writing a book i think he had um an editor and um, there was a publisher and that kind of, I don't know much about it, but, um, those files are on this precious computer. So, um, 
at some point, I know that his wife, Donna, um, she's doing some writing. Um, and I'm keen that at some point it would be nice at the very least to release that. So it's available to people for people to read. Um, because, you know, like you were saying before, it's such an intelligent and interesting way of thinking. Um, it seems a shame for people to not have access to it. I agree. And I, I could actually see it, see it being a bestseller. Um, so this was a question about um, grief and grief experts say that you can still have a relationship with a person after they've died and that it's really important. And I guess I just wanted to ask, do you feel like you have a relationship with John now that he's not here? And also how do you deal with your own grief? It's really, it's all consuming, particularly mm. when somebody's so present in your everyday life you know we're almost lucky because we didn't see him every day so for us if we're at home doing our own thing we can imagine that he's still in his yeah. house with the kids yeah um you know and it's just when you go to make that phone call or send that message and suddenly it's uh that can be a bit um you know almost like a sobering yeah very sobering running under a cold waterfall and how do you continue to have a relationship with him I mean, I guess for you, is it is it through your work with Death Cafe? Does that help? There is that. I mean, the the responses that I send to people through Death Cafe are very much based around. I mean, I've kind of I've changed them a little bit so that they fit with what I would say, but they are almost entirely curated from the emails that he sent to people. Um, and so, f but it's funny because they're the same same sort of things that I would have said anyway. So that's really nice. Um, to think that there's still that link. And also some of the things that he did, um, so there was a, a Google Hangout that he did, which is on YouTube. And a lot of it is him just kind of standing there, kind of pacing from side to side and saying, hmm, listening to people. And I almost I sort of think to myself, I could tell him things and it will feel like he's doing FaceTime with me again and we're kind of having that conversation. Yes. And I haven't done it because it seemed like it might be a bit weird. <laughs> but, no. But um, I think that, you know, if I was, if something really awful happened and I felt like I needed that connection, that would be something that I would consider. So I just wanted to end with some thoughts on death from John. And he said in an online article called The Art of Dying that society sidelines death and that most deaths are invisible as expertise and power rests with medical, governmental and social institutions and that communities, families and the dying are marginalised in that process. What do you think he meant by that? Yeah, I think he meant to make it more visible hmm. uh, more people dying at home rather than in institutions and it uh, death being less death and dying being less medicalized he, um, he likened the death process to the birth process where you receive a lot of support and excitement and people will discuss with you you create a birth plan but you don't tend to do most people don't tend to do that with um, their own death the death of families and kind of what's it going to be like when it happens whereas if you think about the converse of you know what's it going to be like when the child arrives let's make the room ready let's do all of this planning um so if you start to envisage and understand what it's like it kind of brings you back to the whole philosophy of death cafe which is you start to make the most of your finite life because you think well it's going to be a bit of shit when i'm gone isn't it so. yes <laughs> so john also said that death has the potential 
to offer opportunities for profound healing and transformation and that being mindful of death helps us to identify our higher priorities. How do you think the discussion of death can, can do that? I think it's going back to that um, impermanence, you know, understanding that one day you're not going to be here. Mm. How is it, how can you change what you're going to do today that's really going to impact you? You know, is some people kind of belittle having a duvet day and sitting there and watching movies. But if that's actually what you want, rather than cleaning the house to prepare to do that, then um, you can really fulfill, you can gain your happiness yeah. through that small thing. Um, you know, you don't have to go out there and be life-changing for other people if that's not going to be fulfilling for you. Yes. Yeah, I, I love the idea, actually, of Death Cafe being a form of death activism and that it can help preserve life through transforming the fear of death. And what we're really talking about is that actually death activism is life activism, in John's own words. And I felt that was really powerful, so I wanted to end on that. Yeah. Um, so yeah and I, I was going to ask you, ask you actually a fun question which was um, if and when you die when you die what, what are you going to play at your funeral well I'm Jewish and you know it's um, prescribed uh, is it called Malay Rachamim I oh. think the, a particular song that you yes, sing I've heard of that yeah it's sort of chanted oh so I think I probably want a Jewish funeral. Beautiful, yeah. So that's what, that's what I'll have. I've decided, I decided a long time ago, and it's a song by Sugar Ray called Someday, oh, which is I lovely. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a very surfery sort of a song, and it's just because I really like the music and it's got, like, a really nice guitar sound to it, but actually it's about, like, you know, someday I'm not going to be here anymore and this is what it's going to be like. That's a good song. Oh, I'm going to look that up. Um, but thank you so much. Thanks so much for giving me your time and just talking about Death Cafe. And for me, you know, it's I feel it's such an important thing that's, that that John created, and I love that that's his, you know, that's his legacy. So thank you. For more information, please go to deathcafe.com to attend one or even set up your own. And as ever, please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast.